We pray and we'll look at some scripture this morning. Father, uh, knowing you is the greatest thing that any of us can ever have happen, that can be the life story for any of us to know you is life. Lord, we rely on your spirit as we look at your word this morning. Uh, our hearts, even as believers, grow cold and hard, and our eyes are often blind, and we need your spirit to interact with the truth of your word to reveal more of yourself to us this morning. And Lord, thinking about worship as a theme, we want to anticipate and look forward to those endless days ahead where we see you face to face and with the hosts of heaven, Lord, lay our crowns at your feet and sing your praises. And Lord, I pray that our time in the word this morning would give us a little bit more excitement and help us look a little bit more forward to that day when we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. We're talking about worship this morning, worship broadly or praise, thanksgiving, sort of all together blessing God. Worship has been called by some, in fact there's a book by this title, The Missing Jewel in the Life of the Church, for two reasons, a jewel that's missing. The jewel because worship is so important and it's so valuable. It's important to God and it's valuable and important for us as well. And Missing because it's often one of the key elements of the life of the church that's just not going on or it's not going on in the depth and the breadth that it should. Worship the missing jewel, often neglected. Now, if we talk about worship, we're usually thinking about it in one of a couple ways. Let me say the first is real basic, it's real foundational, and that is one of the key thoughts in Scripture is worship means simply to bow down before our superior. And you know, you've got to put this in ancient Middle Eastern context. The thought there was that you approached the one you knew was your superior, like the king, and you bowed down before them, indicating your entire submission to them, and your acknowledgement that they were superior to you. You understood your place before them. And so you acknowledge that by bowing before them. And that meant, I'm yours. Everything I have and own is yours. That's worship broadly. There's the other phase of worship, though, and that's where we'll focus primarily this morning, which is worship as a declaration. The words of our mouth, what we say or what we sing, not just what we meditate on or spiritually in our mind before God, we say to ourselves quietly, Lord, I'm yours. But it's the declaration. Those can be quiet. Declarations could be what we do before the Lord when we're alone and we're praying. Lord, thank you. Or you're worthy. But also it can be boisterous. It can be those times in the church when Mark's got his drums going and we're singing loud and proud, as it were, to the Lord. It can be either. But Worship as a declaration describing those things that are true of God, who he is or what he's done. I've wanted to teach on worship for some time, and I've been in series that didn't allow that. It's been on my mind and my heart quite a bit. Uh, it's an important theme, and we won't do much justice to it this morning, but we'll at least point it out again. I realized that as I was thinking about worship, my tendency, my attitude was to come in and say, kind of like a club, an exhortation, uh, we should worship. We ought to worship. Worship is the right thing to do. 
And all of those things are true. Uh, But I think when you boil it down, there's two key reasons why we either don't worship or we don't worship as we ought to. And the first is that we don't know God. That could be true of someone who hasn't come to faith in Christ yet. We don't know God, so we don't worship. But it can also, in a secondary sense, be true of us as believers. We don't know God as we ought to. We don't know God as He's available to be known. And so for a lack of that personal knowledge, we don't declare His praises. So a lack of information or personal knowledge is one of the reasons we don't worship or we don't worship as we ought. The second would be we know something about God. We maybe have known some about His saving acts in history, and we choose not to worship. We don't want to worship God. We simply turn our back and say that's not what I'm interested in. Now, because we're here this morning, I don't think that's the motivation for our failure to worship God as He deserves to be worshipped, that we simply don't want to. I think more often than not, it's a lack of information. It's a lack of personally seeing God as He is or contemplating, taking in what He's done and what that means for us. It's a lack of information or knowledge. Now, I have no remedy for the second one. If we simply say, I'm not interested in God and I'm not interested in worshiping Him, know a little bit about Him, that's enough, thank you, and I'm done with that, I don't have a remedy for that. But if our failure to worship as we ought is related to information, we've got a ready solution for that. Because now all we're talking about is lifting the veil a bit to say, really, who is God? What is He like? What has He done? Because if we do... Guys, you know, these are the scenes in Revelation where the creatures who see God as He is and know what He has done, they can't help but say, holy, holy, holy. They can't help but fall down in His presence and worship. That's the natural fruit of seeing God and knowing Him as He is. Worship comes. You don't have to say, go worship God. If you see Him as He is, if you know what He's done, worship comes naturally for those who are redeemed. It should. It's sort of the necessary byproduct of seeing God as He is for the redeemed. We uh, intentionally, on one of our vacation days, were on the Pacific uh, Ocean at the beach there, and we'd been on the beach all day. Rachel wanted to be there for the sunset. So we went to our second or third beach of the day and planted our little umbrella again and started walking and looking at the little critters on the beach and the other folks that were out there for fun and the kids playing in the sand. But we were waiting for the sunset. And you know, it was uh, cloudy enough that as the sun was sinking in the west, you know how there are holes in the clouds and you get these rays of sunlight streaming out from the setting sun. And you know, you've got the sort of the pinks and the yellows as it's starting to go down and then it gets deeper red and deeper gold. And you know, as we're there on the beach, you don't have to say, Mike, stop and notice this sunset, because I can't help. We're there for that reason, but I couldn't help it anyway. It's so glorious, and it's so awe-inspiring, that if I were just there by happenstance and saw the sun going down, it would stop me in my tracks as I looked at it, and it would by itself inspire awe in me, as it did. Wow. And it wouldn't matter if I saw that every day. I'd have the same response. It is so beautiful, it is so awe-inspiring that to see it elicits its own response. 
It is so glorious, I can't help but recognize that. And it's a moment of worship, as you will, as I just stop and pause and take in what God has made there. Well, if we can see God a little bit more fully as He is, that's the same response that comes. If, if we find that our worship isn't vital, or it's not regular, or it's not heartfelt, it feels shallow, or maybe like a, a language we don't know, it's probably because we're not seeing God as He is. We shouldn't have to work up worship. Worship should be the result of seeing God as He is and contemplating again what He has done for us. Because just like that son, if we see God as He is, and if we're aware of what He's done for us historically in Christ on the cross, but also day to day to just tack up the things He's done for us, the way He's provided for us, worship flows, thanksgiving flows, praise comes naturally. We can't help it. It overflows as we see God as He is. So if we have hearts to worship, if we know God, if we're inclined to appreciate Him and lay our lives as an offering to His worthiness and don't, it's because we aren't yet fully arrested by His greatness, kindness, power, grace, and perfections. Uh, Jeremy Bedenbaugh of the Journey Church in St. Louis, Missouri, was teaching on this same subject. It must have been a month or so back. I was listening to this, his teaching online, uh, and he was using Psalm 103. And so I had actually been praying, Lord, what text should I use? And I felt like that was my answer. So we'll follow Jeremy and Journey Church in St. Louis to Psalm 103. That's where we're parked for the morning. Let me say a few things before we do. The term bless here. Bless the Lord, O my soul, means to kneel and by implication to bless God as an act of adoration. The Hebrew word barak, you know, if you hear someone's name, if it's Hebrew origin barak, it means to praise or to bless. That word is used as a name frequently. Uh, also notice that when David calls himself to worship, he goes through a list in his own mind to do so. Because he knows if he tallies reality up again, if he looks back and sees what God has done, he knows he will be constrained to worship again. And as you're going through this psalm, as you hear David's facts from the past, be thinking about yourself in my life. What does that look like in my life? Those points of grace God has shed in my life. And then the last is, notice that this psalm, Day of, of David, David is preaching to himself. He is telling himself the truth. And you know, this is a great practice for us. We need to tell ourselves the truth. We talk regularly about reading the Bible because that's the truth, right? But when we're away from the Bible, are we speaking the truth to our own souls and to our own minds? David is preaching to himself and it's a great model for us to do the same thing. Psalm 103, this is from the New American Standard. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, 
who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He Himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind is passed over, it is no more. Its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember His precepts to do them. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you His angels, mighty in strength, who perform His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all you His hosts, you who serve Him, doing His will. Bless the Lord, all you works of His, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord... Oh, my soul. Now, when David adds it up, as he does in this psalm, he says the only conclusion he can draw is this, that praise is the only appropriate response to a right apprehension of God and His blessings. So you notice there David begins and ends this psalm on the same note. This song starts and ends with the same note. Verses 1 and 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Everything that's in me, bless His holy name. Verse 2, bless the Lord, O my soul. Verse 22, bless the Lord, O my soul. This reminder is the first and last thing David states because it's the first and last thing of importance. Blessing God, thanking Him, worshiping Him is the first and last thing of importance. David understood that praising God is the happy obligation of all of his creation, and that he would be negligent if other voices praised God and his did not. So look at the way the psalm ends again. Verse 20, bless the Lord, his angels. Verse 21, bless the Lord, you, his hosts. This is the Hebrew sabaoth. It's in Romans also. It's a hard word to pronounce, but it means armies. Verse 22, bless the Lord, all his work of creation, everything that he does. And then lastly, bless the Lord, O my soul. So David understands that every type of all the angels in heaven, they are blessing God. They're called to it and they're doing it. All the hosts or the armies of heaven are called to praise God. And all his works are called to praise him. You might think of something like Psalm 19 here. 
You know, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. This ties in here again in just a moment. It's not that creation has a voice to speak. Psalm 19 says their voice is not heard. It's not audible. And yet, creation itself communicates praise to God anyway. To everyone who has eyes to see. So all his works praise him. When David tells his own soul to praise God, he's only reminding himself to do that which all of creation is meant to do, which is to praise and thank and worship God. God will be worshipped and praised with or without David and with or without you and me. But wouldn't it be better to join the chorus of heaven and the works of and the Lord's armies and the angels in his praise than to remain dumb and silent? Do you remember from Luke 19 when Jesus rides victoriously into Jerusalem and all the children are yelling Hosanna and all the crowds are ascribing to him the title of the Son of David? And the Jewish leaders say, man, they're going too far, Jesus. You should quiet them down. They're out of line. You need to tell them to stop. And you remember what Jesus says? He says, if these should be silent, the rocks themselves would cry out. If human voices fall silent, Jesus says, creation itself would rise up to declare my praises. The rocks would cry out. The implication is that whether we are considering Jesus specifically, broadly here, or any member of the Trinity, he is so worthy to be praised that even the inanimate creation is constrained to declare his praises. It's easy for us at times, Western culture versus Middle Eastern culture. We tend to uh, sit on our hands a little bit more verbally. Uh, we tend to get embarrassed a little bit more easily unless we've totally lost our mind and sense of who we are, where we're at at a sporting event or something like that, then worship just comes really naturally. But otherwise, we, we're not sure that we want anyone to hear us when we sing. And we might be embarrassed if we spoke up a little too loud, you know. But here you've got this picture, Jesus being worshipped by kids and adults and saying, if they didn't, rocks would rise. And the, the contrast is just helpful for me. Uh, do I want to be an intelligent worshiper of God or do I want to be a dumb rock? A dumb rock would be smarter than me if I'm silent and it rises in Jesus' words to praise or to bless God. Do I want to join the choirs of heaven in the intelligent apprehension and praise of God or do I want to be like the dirt under my feet that has no comprehension? That's sort of the call. Which do I want to be? Which group do I want to emulate? Do we want to join the chorus of heaven or be reduced to the status of dumb rocks? You see, David understood that creation and angels and heaven's armies would praise him and God's works would praise him. And he's telling himself, I can't miss this. This is too important and I'm called to it. Everything else in God's creation is going to praise him and I must too. And I'm telling myself, bless the Lord my soul. Join in the adulation of the rest of creation. Now, 
Verse 2 says, forget none of his benefits. One of the key mechanisms David uses to rouse himself to praise and worship is to remember. It's to use his memory to look back on his life and look back on the story of the nation of Israel to see what God had done, how he had moved, how he had blessed. And it was in remembering that David would fill his mind again with God's goodness and God's saving acts, which would then produce thanksgiving. So he says to himself, don't forget any of God's benefits. David tells himself, I'm going to do the math. I'm going to add up the facts. I'm going to remember what's happened, and it's going to produce thanksgiving. The trouble for us is life is so fast. And there are so many things all of us are dealing with that life just sort of crowds out the mundane, crowds out the most important. It just happens. And so David says, I'm going to use my memory as a mechanism to call to mind the things that matter most. Now, we took several pictures on our vacation. And, you know, when I look at those, I remember... So if I look at those pictures from the beach, I'm back at the beach. You know, and I'm smelling the beach again, sometimes stinky, sometimes okay. I'm smelling the beach, and I'm seeing the sunset, and I'm, I'm back in the moment. The picture reminds me. I'm taking myself back where I was, and I'm back in that moment. Or we're at Starbucks up at Big Bear Lake, and we're just enjoying the cooler temperature, and we're reading from a book together, And I see that picture and I'm back there again. And I'm feeling that sense of relaxation and blessing and fellowship. I'm using those pictures to remind myself, to take myself back. And I feel those same things again. That was so great. That was so fun. And that makes me thankful again in the same way I was then. Lord, thanks for those times. Thanks for the way you blessed us. We use those photographs as a mechanism for us to remember times and people and places we've been to take us back and put us in those moments. When we remember God's past faithfulness to us, it does the same thing. You know, life's hard. If you've been around on the planet any time, you know life's hard. For Christians, life is harder. We don't get it easier, we get it harder. Jesus promised this. You follow me, you're going to get trouble. Trouble you wouldn't have otherwise. Life is hard, and it takes a a conscious will sometimes to remind ourselves who God is and what He's done for us, and we do that by remembering, by consciously looking back and remembering what God has done for us. Now, you know, as a church, though we're not having the Lord's Supper this morning, preeminently God has done this for us. Jesus did in telling us to remember Him in the Lord's Supper. And I think in the equivalence of his day, the Lord's Supper is a photograph. You know, you take elements, physical elements that you see and you taste and you touch. You take the wine and you take the juice or the bread, excuse me, the the juice or the wine and you take the bread, those elements. And Jesus says it's like a picture. And we look at that and we remember. And we remember that God loved us so much that he sent Jesus for us. And we remember that Jesus loved us so much that He willingly laid His life down for us on the cross. He was our substitute. He took our place. We remember that Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that's our resurrection. We remember that the Lord's Supper is not only a remembrance of things past, but it's a promise of things 
future. We celebrate these things until the Lord comes. It's the same thing. It's a way of remembering what God has done for us. The Lord's Supper, those photographs. So David says, I'm going to remember what God has done for me. I'm going to look back and see His saving works on my behalf and on the nation's behalf. And when I do, praise is going to flow. I can't help it. Sophia's doing well. You can leave her here, Ken. It's fun to have the babies. Great names, too. Sophia's a great name. Uh, now, when David Green, when he looks back, when he remembers, there's two primary things that come to his mind why he should praise God. And the first one is the forgiveness of sins. David says, I've been forgiven. And guys, if there was no other reason for David or for us, the forgiveness of our sins is adequate motivation to move us and inspire us to praise and worship forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Just the forgiveness of our sins. It's the first thing he mentions because it's the most important. Guys, if we don't have forgiveness of sins, we're at odds with the holy God. And we have no future to look forward to. We have only God's righteous judgment to look forward to apart from the forgiveness of our sins. If there's no forgiveness... We're in trouble. We have no happy, holy future. We have God's righteous judgment to look forward to. Simply having our sins forgiven, it wouldn't matter how hard your life was. It wouldn't matter how persecuted you were. It wouldn't matter how destitute you were. If we're forgiven, we're in right relationship with God and we have a future and a hope. If we're not forgiven, it doesn't matter how high and lofty our life or status is here. It doesn't matter how much money we have. It doesn't matter how many points of enjoyment we have in this life. They're all going to be over in the wink of an eye and we have an eternity without Christ under God's judgment. Forgiveness, just forgiveness, is enough motivation for us to look back and say, wow, Lord, thank you again and again that you've saved me. That at your cost you've covered my sins that I'm not going to face the penalty, the righteous penalty, for my sins before you. Forgiveness is the most important of anything David could remember. And he brings this up four times. Look at verses 3 and 4. God or Yahweh in the psalm pardons our iniquities, heals our diseases, disease often the fruit of our own sin, redeems our life from the pit. In the grave, we still have hope. We've got a resurrection and a hope. Verse 9, he won't always uh, strive, NASB says, or accuse. He's not always going to accuse us about our faults because of forgiveness. Verse 10, he's not dealt with us according to our sins. He's not rewarded us according to our iniquities. He's taken those things out of the way. That's not the way he dealt with David or with us. And verse 12, he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, you know, it's good that David wrote this psalm. And it's good that he's the one bringing up forgiveness, isn't it? Because David knew a thing or two about sin, personally, and so he knew a thing or two about forgiveness also. So most of us, not to minimize any sin, most of us are lightweights in here on the sin scale compared to King David, right? 
So adultery and murder, he claimed those before God, right? Those were his sins. But also, as king of the nation and trusted with the welfare of the nation, David numbered Israel. He brought about, by his doing, the death of thousands of Israelites in whose care God had placed them. David felt the weight of sin. He knew what it was to feel guilty. And so, because of that strong sense of guilt, real guilt, real guilt, real sin, the forgiveness of those sins felt so much more liberating, felt so valuable to him, because he knew and he felt the weight of his own sin. So, For those who rely on Christ for forgiveness, and we know that David had faith in God and God's future Messiah that would come, his future descendant, you and I are in the same boat in that our iniquities are pardoned. So the soul-destroying disease of sin has been healed. Our life's redeemed from hell. God no longer faces us with accusation or anger, but with love and acceptance as his own beloved children. He doesn't hold our sins against us, doesn't interact with us based on our faults. And He has so completely removed our sin, it's as if they've been moved to a place that doesn't exist. Where does east and west meet anyway? They're removed entirely. That's David's description of forgiveness. So instead of answering to God for our own sins, now, His righteous judgment in the lake of fire were set free the full weight of God's justice being met in David's son when the Lord Jesus willingly became our substitute sacrifice in his death on the cross and then in his resurrection. He became the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, your sins and mine. David had written about his sins too. You probably remember Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, other psalms about his culpability, his guilt, and God's forgiveness. You know, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Happy is the man whose sins are forgiven. If we find our praise shallow or infrequent or less than heartfelt, I think probably, other things aside, we probably fail to see the utter wickedness of our own sin our real culpability before a holy God. And we don't realize the huge cost Christ paid for us and what he saved us from. If there's no other reason to worship and praise every moment of every day, forgiveness is enough. And if we don't see our life characterized by a deep sense of gratitude to God and worship and praise, my suspicion is we don't realize how utterly, utterly, lost and wicked in our own sins we were, and therefore we don't realize the fullness of the grace of God poured out for us in Christ. Forgiveness is enough to worship God forever. David lists another key reason to praise God, and it's God's loyal love, his compassion. This is one he mentions five times here, if you look quickly through these verses with me. Verse 4, He crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's abounding in loving kindness. Verse 8, verse 11, As high as the heavens above the earth, that's God's loving kindness towards those who fear Him. He's compassionate like a father on His children. 
He has compassion on those who fear Him, verse 13. And verse 17, the loving kindness of God is from basically eternity past to eternity future. When we're talking about loving kindness and compassion, loving kindness is a loyal love. It's the uh, second key attribute, if you number them up, of God in the Old Testament. Holiness is the first. God is, has a loyal or demonstrates loyal love. That's the second. It's love that doesn't end. It's love that doesn't quit. In the New Testament, it would be a, akin to agape love. It doesn't matter what the object does. God's loyal love pursues them. And compassion has a sense of uh, an intimate care for someone. In the Middle East, um, when you said you really loved someone or really felt compassion for them, they wouldn't have said, my heart goes out to that person. Uh, some of the more literal translations of the Old Testament will say there were, they had bowels of compassion. They didn't see it as a heart up in their chest. They said, we feel it in our gut. And so part of this is the thought, the kind of tenderness a mother has for the child in her womb is the same thought about the kind of compassion or thoughtfulness God has for us. Loyal love, this love that doesn't quit. Compassion, this real tenderness for one of my own children. Those are the thoughts here. And so when David is thinking about God and what God's love is like, he says, God pursues me with a love that never quits. And he does so tenderly like a mother would her own child. Loyal love and compassion. Uh, this is in my own life, uh, working through the psalm, this is for me the one that gets me again and again and again. I'm thrilled my sins are forgiven, and I probably don't pay enough attention to that, what it cost God to redeem me and how wicked I was. But this loyal love and God's compassion, uh, you know all of us are born uh, fractured on one hand. We're sinful from, from conception. And yet we still come out of the womb and we grow up knowing we need to know that we're loved and we're accepted. We need to know that we're loved and accepted. Love that someone really cares for me, I'm not on my own, and ex uh, loved and accepted, and I'm known. If I think you love me but you don't know me, I'm in trouble because I know as soon as you figure out the rest of my story, you won't love me anymore. We need both. We need to know that we're loved and known. One won't do without the other. You've got to have them both. So God loves us and He accepts us perfectly and fully in Christ. Sins are covered, so He's free to do that for us now. And for me, like David, one of the key ways that I call that to mind again and again is simply the ways God shows His goodness to me in my life. And these are often small ways. They don't have to be big for me. You know, many of us go through life and we feel like nobody else knows what's going on. They have no idea what's going on in my life. And many times we don't. You know, we can show up on Sunday morning, we put on our smiles, everything's, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? Oh, I'm great. You know, it's another story when we leave or before we got here. Everything's fine. Right. Um, when God shows up and he does something for us that is meaningful to us, he provides something for us, he answers a prayer, he, he gives us some small thing of encouragement that to us is meaningful. For me, those are the things where I'm just, 
I just melt again. It's like, God, I'm so thankful because I get it again. You're still being good to me. You're still pouring out your love on me. You, you know what's going on in my life, and you love me anyway. You know what I'm like, and you accept me anyway. And you've demonstrated that again by this loyal love, by these small acts of compassion by which I'm reminded again, I am accepted. I am loved. And for David, that was one of the key things. When I see those acts of God's kindness and compassion, I move to worship again. I think Christians, we should be so thankful every day. We've got so much in the way of blessing, eternal and temporal. And when we add up the facts, when we do the math, it's like, wow, God, you've given me so much. You've blessed me so fully. How can I not be thankful and bless you and thank you and praise you and worship you? You know, it's for lack of that God-provided sense of, of worth, of acceptance, and knowledge, uh, for lack of that, we pursue the stupid and hurtful things uh, as substitutes. And of course, they never work. They never work. They never, they never last. It's only God that can give us the real thing. C.S. Lewis said this, I've tried to make every pleasure into a channel of adoration. I have a good hamburger. It's like, oh, Lord, that's so good. Thank you. You know, or... Uh, I'm encouraged by someone else. I just, oh, Lord, that was so good. Thank you. Every pleasure into a channel of adoration. So David reminded himself of God's great goodness, his loyal love, his compassionate acts, and knew his soul would overflow with praise. There were other reasons David had to bless God. I'll just mention these briefly. Verse 5, you see, he says that God satisfies his years with good things. He renews his strength like the eagle. Verse 6, God performs righteous deeds. At this point, I just want to say, you have on your study sheet some uh, slots there to write in your own. Think in your own life. What is it? What has God done? What do I know about God? Such that when I bring it to mind again, it moves me to thanksgiving and praise and worship. How has God moved in my life? What does that look like? When I rehearse, when I bring my pictures out, when I stir my memory to look back. What are those acts of grace God has provided in my life that stir me again appropriately to praise and worship, to thanksgiving? The truth is, everybody in this room, we've got a list. You've got like eight options there. You know, we could just keep going through the day if you think about it. Just keep writing those down. What are those for us, though? Because when we remind ourselves of those significant acts of God in our life, that moves us to praise again. That's the appropriate thing. Guys, we're never happier, by the way, than when we worship. We are never more fulfilled. We never have a greater sense of place and purpose than when we're worshiping because we're in right relationship with God and we're doing that which we were created to do. It's the ultimate fulfillment to be in God's place worshiping Him. So ask yourself, write this down, think about it this week. How has God acted in my life in our family's life, what does that look like? And tell ourselves those stories again. Now, you could sit here this morning and say, uh, I'm not forgiven, and I don't have a history to look back and give thanks for. And if you are, man, I'd say today, accept the, thanks, accept the forgiveness that comes simply through faith in Christ. 
there, there is nothing we can do in this life to get rid of our sins other than appeal to Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. Nothing else will cleanse our conscience. Nothing else will cover the guilt in our own minds for the things we've done wrong. Nothing else can. Nothing else will work. But you come to Christ and you accept the forgiveness He's provided. Man, every day's a holiday. I'm forgiven, really. My conscience is clear, really. I've got a future and a hope and I don't have to do the dumb, stupid things I used to do looking for significance and acceptance. I've got the real thing. So if you're not sure, trust Christ today. It's as simple as saying, Father, I accept the forgiveness you provided through Jesus' sacrifice on my behalf. That's the way into a life filled with thanksgiving. So this week, this morning and this week, remember God's faithfulness, His past faithfulness to you and to me, either in our lives personally, in our family's life, in the church. Remember. Remember God's past goodness and the forgiveness He's provided for us in Christ. Remember Christ's death and resurrection for us. And come to the conclusion David came to. Bless the Lord, O my soul.